Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. How can you help me? Perhaps someday I could tell you the nature of evil. Would you like to know how to to solve the problem of evil? The great has spoken! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man! I'm a very good man. Good man. They think deep thoughts, and with no more brains than you have. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, today we are doing part three of our journey into Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. This is the last part, right? This is the concluding part. <laughs> I guess we will find out in like three hours. <laughs> We did think, even the first one we thought. But like, I get that the first one, we might have miscalibrated the second one. So you never know. Uh, Especially since not only we're going to talk about a couple of scenes that we didn't get to and the epilogue, but we're also going to cast it and assign a director. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited about that. Me too. That's what took me the longest amount of research. (laughs) That's what I was doing today. I was like looking up actors like actors under 20 like best exactly. actors. <laughs> yeah, turns no. out there's a lot of lists of hot young actors under 25 <laughs> i want as the kid the young sheldon kid <laughs> oh, i saw him on the list <laughs> the uh plague of every nfl football fan young sheldon because it would always come on <laughs> after so you would see these commercials <laughs> and you would just think what kind of a like a mentality oh i like this yeah. But before that, we're going to discuss a, a paper, uh, a study that's really good, I think. Really good. Like, I really like what they're doing. Uh, I mean, there are a couple issues maybe with the mes- methodology and stuff like that. But overall, I, I think it's great. I definitely think there's some flaws, but like totally. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've read worse. You know? Yeah. Uh, told, I mean, yeah. Yeah, not that often, but, but, you know, (laughs) their heart is in the right place. I think, you know, I think, um, so (laughs) this is a recent study published in behavioral sciences, the development and validation of a measure of passive aggressive traits, the passive aggression scale. Yeah. Which for people who didn't pick up (laughs) on the heavy hinting, you were inspired by this wonderful paper. It's good when you explain it. Well, I'm a little worried. I'm just a little worried. <laughs> um, so, okay. So this is actually a couple of Korean researchers. Now, look, I don't know what you're going to talk about, Tamler. I, I think we'd be wasting our breath to, to criticize 
the study. I think we should just talk about the passive aggressive scale and maybe go through it. But if you want to get any of it off your chest, it's fine. If I do, you think it'll be great. I mean, you know, we do have a long show ahead of us and stuff. I mean, but... it's not like you make these points often. And, uh, you know, people don't know, might not know where you stand. <laughs> uh, fine. I won't talk about like, I really I, I get that this is not a top tier journal. But it's, very, it's not even a tier journal. <laughs> the thing that they're trying to do is measure because we don't have this yet. It was rejected, I guess, from DSM something. Well, yeah, uh, it was actually I didn't really know this until seeing this, but there was in the DSM one and then in the DSM three R, the revised version of DSM three, um, there was a personally personality disorder that was called passive aggressive personality disorder. So but it got. It got axed. It got dinged for lack of construct validity, right? That's what they said. Is that what they said? I actually don't know. But like now it's like if if you think that somebody might have this, you have to label them as other specific personality disorder. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So this is trying to actually validate uh, a passive aggression scale, um, which I just don't get what that means. But let's set that aside. You know, we, we really should get Jessica Flake on here. Yeah, yeah, she would have a lot to say about this. Validation. Uh, there is a particular kind of validity that they're going for, right? Which is not the kind that Tamler uh, probably wants or anybody. <laughs> um, but that kind of validity is saying, if we come up with a new construct, um, what we want to do is show that it's not just another measure of the same thing. Right? It's not like uh, just uh, redoing something, but it's also related kind of to things that you think it should be related to. So then people, so people will develop a scale and what like the valid quote unquote validation they'll, they'll do is just give people a bunch of scales and then say, oh, look, it's kind of correlated with this but one. But how but not do you so determine the other scale that would give you confidence that you're really picking out passive aggression, like being from Minnesota doing like, like what? <laughs> that was just aggressive that was just aggressive rate on a like uh, seven point scale like are you from minnesota do you right. live in minnesota do you live in minnesota how long have you lived in minnesota? <laughs> <laughs> i mean the answer is there right so they have like the, so these are korean researchers uh, so i think some of these were are, are just korean measures the population was all korean Nothing but respect for Koreans. Yeah, I mean, they probably should look at broader samples is all I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah, where's the Korean Joe Henry? Where are the white sophomore (laughs) college students? (laughs) We can't generalize. (laughs) There's no right, there's no real answer to what they should be looking at. I guess you just want to say like, if you have like some measure of novelty seeking, you want it to be kind of related to openness to experience, but you don't want it to be exactly the same as openness to experience. Yeah, I just don't know what pet the one for a passive aggression with all be. of these right like defense mechanism test defense style questionnaire the subscale of the minnesota person uh, multiphasic personality <laughs> minnesota, minnesota. <laughs> personality <laughs> right apparently there's a subscale of the mmpi uh, for personality disorders so um, you would want it to just kind of overlap with it but not be exactly that it yeah i guess right it depends and some things you would want it to not correlate at all i guess um but you're right it's like a there's <laughs> You know, I'm not a scale construction kind of person. I don't know if there are any like uh, conventions about what, how much they should relate and how much they shouldn't. I find that most of the time people are like, oh, look, 0.7. That's right around where we would want it to be. Right. And what's always amazes me when I go through a paper is the 
complexity of the math. The math here is something like, I feel like it would take me years. There are like figures, there are symbols, there are signs that I don't know what they are. It's well, it like, would take you years because you well, probably right. need a PhD. But, <laughs> but, but you combine that with this kind of like, well, how, how much should it overlap with, you know, defense mechanism or whatever? Like, I don't know. Like, it's just, it's just such a weird like juxtaposition of the really precise complex math with <laughs> the a target that is that it can't be like that there would be no way for us to know if it was like that it's uh like it's not even clear what it means for you to think it's like that so it's very it's like this whole thing is very strange uh, uh, you know we're now we're doing exactly what you said uh, okay, we sorry. wouldn't do <laughs> okay. um but, but yes, point taken, Tim. Okay. This is, uh, <laughs> fine, fine, you're right. <laughs> the only reason we picked it was to talk about passive aggression, I think. And this is what I actually think is good about these things, is they're just fun to like go through. So you want to go through it? Yeah, 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 let's do it. So there's three subscales um, of this scale, inducing criticism, like component, like they call them components, the, the avoiding and ignoring component, and then the sabotaging component. So... Uh, you know, I didn't catch whether these are supposed to like when you rate yourself. Is it a seven point? I think it's six. Or is it six? But we well, I wish they that. gave you like you're from like Minnesota. You're from Wisconsin. Not as bad. It should right. give you who you are. You know, you're like, like you're like British, English specifically, Scandinavian. Uh, you know, like and then you have like Dutch, which is like the lowest passive aggressive score because they'll just tell you exactly what they think. Pure aggression. Uh, <laughs> Your aggression. Okay. Passive aggression scale, inducing criticism component. When I talk about someone I dislike or find uncomfortable, I pretend to praise their strengths, but also drop hints about their weaknesses. This is, uh, yeah, totally what I associate with pass passive aggressiveness. Yeah. Like when you're on a hiring committee and you know that you don't want to hire, you know, like somebody who applied to the job. You're like, no, I mean, they've really, they're really productive. You know, I've just, you know, yeah. heard some things. Not, <laughs> but, you know, like who knows? Like you just hear things all the time. So, you know. <laughs> no, they're really they're productive. They write a lot of articles. Uh, it's yeah. not exactly my uh, <laughs> cup of tea. You know, like I'm not familiar with that debate but yeah with a lot of good papers uh, uh, yeah. i tattle on mistakes made by someone i don't like or find uncomfortable to a higher authority to ruin their reputation this doesn't seem to me to be like that's not what i associate with the term yeah i actually there's a lot here that i don't associate with being passive aggressive i think and like i just wonder if it's cultural differences this um, is just being a snitch yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like passive aggressive has to be not, well, I guess it could be behind your back, but, but this seems like this is just actually trying to get someone in trouble. Um, yeah. I intentionally reveal embarrassing events or the dark pasts of someone I dislike or find uncomfortable in public. Again, that seems aggressive. At least I, when somebody does that, uh, so should we say what we're like, I feel like the first one I do sometimes I do do that. The, these two, I, I hope I don't do this. Um, but I know people who do. And that's like a huge red flag to me. If somebody's just saying all of a sudden they're telling you some secret shit about somebody like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like for all the shit I give my former state for three years, Minnesota, I don't feel like they were especially high in like this niche scale. 
I think they were the they do that as much as anybody else does. I, I I don't I guess the part that might be passive aggressive is you don't do it just for the fun of gossip and being a dick, but you do it because you find them uncomfortable. The the revealing embarrassing events, like again, or dark pasts, I just don't like that's just that's a bad thing to do, but I don't feel like it's passive aggressive. Yeah, yeah, I don't either. I and like I guess their working definition of passive aggressive is something like you're damaging somebody without ever directly telling them. Like it's a very like a completely indirect way. Um Yeah, I wonder if but, that's because that's I guess yeah maybe we should talk about what we think of passive aggressiveness like it's a subspecies of that but it's not to me the kind of the hallmark of it is this on the one hand you're kind of pretending to praise somebody or apologize for something that you did or I also feel like it's very like second like interpersonal, just it's not yeah, yeah, third party I, that yeah, much, yeah, you know? exactly. Like, I was about yeah. to say exactly that. Like to me, being passive aggressive is something that you do to a person to avoid being more direct with them. Yeah, like to have family members who, like the the servers in a restaurant, they'll be like, "How was your meal?" And they'll be like, "Oh, it was great." You know, I mean, the coffee was a little cold, but you know, yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah. just like, all right, just. Just say the coffee was cold. Just like yeah, you're not trying to get them fired, or even trying to get your yeah. you're taking out some resentment in a way that's indirect. That's the way I kind of uh, yeah yeah feel about but it. it. Yeah, to, my intuition is the same, and that it's really about interacting with somebody. And by the way, there's a third component which is sabotaging, but these seem like sa- kind of sabotaging too. Mm-hmm. Um, I ask someone I don't like or find uncomfortable or find uncomfortable questions they can't answer in front of others to make them uncomfortable. That's de- like, it's definitely not passive aggressive. That's like active aggressive. Like totally. you're trying yeah. to humiliate the person publicly. Yeah. Yeah. Induce me. I mock someone I don't like or find uncomfortable by being sarcastic and pretending it's just a joke. Yeah. That, that one I'll give. Yeah. You know, like, especially the part of pretending it's just a joke, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm just kidding. Why, why are you getting all upset? yeah yeah that's i heard you have gonorrhea Uh, just kidding (laughs) yeah yeah but seriously i did hear that but i'm sure it's (laughs) modern antibiotics that's also a thing that i think married couples do to each other my marriage (laughs) accuse each other of having gonorrhea (laughs) no i walked into that um no that kind of like you say something and then when the person gets mad you're like what it was a joke obviously what do you mean like why are you getting so upset like that's like i feel like but like i'm not saying jen does it or i I do it i feel like we both do it sometimes Uh, yeah you know there's like a real i think as the authors probably argue in this paper there's a real function for (laughs) for some of this stuff you don't want to walk yourself into a fight but sometimes you do want to communicate something. And yeah. if if you're cowardly like I am sometimes, then, you know, I'd, I'd rather yeah. have a... You'd rather do it. Yeah, like a, a way out. <laughs> I like to think that I'm more on the, like, if, I, if I'm unhappy, I'll just say it. But I do think, like, we all have some of this in us, and I probably have it way more than I would like to admit. Yeah, well, the thing... Here's the thing. I think that over the years, I've learned to be a lot more direct about things that bother me. Um, but there's sometimes where I, I just don't want, like, I, I just don't want to 
have the battle of a direct confrontation. And so it's really just sort of like willpower. It's like a crazia that's making me say something. <laughs> but... Right. <laughs> when I have something I want to say about someone I dislike or find uncomfortable, I talk about it with others in plain sight of them. By the way, this is clearly a, like a translation, I guess, because finding somebody uncomfortable is kind of a, yeah. a, a, weird, a weird way of putting it. Um, I agree. Yeah. Um, so this is like talking shit while they're right there. But not in but earshot. earshot. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Like, I, I, again, I think that's an unpleasant characteristic, but not yeah. one that I associate, especially with passive aggression. Yeah. I p pretend I am the victim to get, I mean, I haven't looked at their, the math, so I might be wrong about that. <laughs> Obviously. You what do you know about sums of squares? Right. Um, <laughs> I, I pretend I am the victim to give someone I dislike or find uncomfortable a hard time. Yeah. I do that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, you do it to me. I feel like you do that. Well, you know, after all that I put up with. Um... You're like, but I'm Hispanic. <laughs> Did you? I know that you only asked me to be your co-host because I was Hispanic. I purposefully avoid eye contact with someone I don't like or find uncomfortable. I don't purposely yeah. do it. Like sometimes no, yeah. if I find awkward. somebody like uncomfortable, like I, it's hard to look them in the eye. Um, I don't, I'm just bad at eye contact in, in general. Um, but yeah, when I meet someone I dislike or find uncomfortable, I try to get away from them intentionally. Now, how is that passive aggressive? <laughs> that's just smart. Yeah. You like know? that's like the best thing you most productive and healthy thing you like. <laughs> exactly. Maybe this is something like that they subtract from the score or something. Yeah, yeah. that's, yeah, I was thinking the exact same thing. We, yeah. we should have paid more attention to the way. <laughs> Um, although I don't know that in this paper they actually lay out how they score it. Um, I give someone I dislike or find uncomfortable the silent treatment. Now, if, <laughs> right. if they're like right there, that's just, that's not passive aggressive. I mean, it's passive in the sense that being silent is the, the absence of an action, but it's pretty damn just like uh, I don't it's know, weird like, it's like what are you doing like they're talking to you like and then you just don't say anything like i would yeah. be like are you okay like what like uh okay when someone on social media i dislike or find uncomfortable asks me a question i pretend i never saw the question in the first place that's not passive aggressiveness no. that's just be having a healthy like a relationship with, so <laughs> with social media there's no obligation <laughs> yeah 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 I have a cold and dismissive attitude towards someone I dislike or find uncomfortable. Again, I don't know how they're measuring this, but like, I feel like, no, that's the whole point is it, they, it's pretending to be your friend. Yeah. And so like, if you're being dismissive, at least that's right. not. That's where you stand. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Passive aggression scale, sabotaging component. I deliberately delay someone I dislike or find uncomfortable to give them a hard time. <laughs> what the fuck does that mean? Like, what does that mean? I deliberately delay someone. <laughs> give you a hard time. Do like a bomb scare to the tr train station you know it's going to take? Like, this, what do yeah. you... This is lost in translation. For the record, we didn't just find this paper. There's an actual blog post, like, on Psychology Today that, like, yeah. is what what uh, the people that published these um, deliberately delay... Uh, um, I pretend to help someone I dislike or find uncomfortable, but sabotage their work behind their back. 
just feel like that goes behind that goes past passive aggression but like i get what they're saying but yeah 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 this is like hitting like on some sort of borderline personality disorder like the people who are just like terrible like that yeah this isn't like I want to make it clear that the Minnesotans that I sometimes bring <laughs> up in this context don't do a lot of these things. They don't like pull you like by your shirt as you're walking down the hall to delay you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. When I work with someone I dislike or find uncomfortable, I intentionally don't do my share of the work and end up penalizing them. Now it just seems like you're obsessed. Like you're just like. <laughs> you're the you're the problem here right yeah passive aggressive should be way more dismissive than this and and also like like less intentional kind of it's like something like you're not it's it's not some massive strategy you're thinking up when you're being passive aggressive yeah maybe in my head when you're passive aggressive to somebody else it's to their face and it's under the guise it's a thinly veiled sort of like positivity Um, yeah it's like a positivity veiling like the negativity but only thinly yeah Veiling some sort of grudge, uh, resentment, bitterness. Like, why are you not citing my papers more? (laughs) Right. Oh, yeah, that's a good one, actually. Yeah. As as I wrote in, uh, you know, 2004, um, I'm sure you've seen it. Uh, (laughs) Although you didn't cite it. I was wondering why you didn't cite it in that 2009 paper. But anyway, so anyway, like, yeah, as I wrote. Yeah. Or, you know, I loved your paper. Uh, I remember we had a talk about <laughs> that, this two years ago. Right. And, uh, you know, I remember mentioning to you <laughs> that somebody should do this. And uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. so to my surprise, I saw it published. I didn't, I didn't know that you were going <laughs> to take me up on that to that extent. Maybe I shouldn't uh, should be a little more careful next time, I guess. <laughs> but that's great. Congratulations. For, there's, there's, <laughs> there's a certain level of pettiness to academics. That, uh, I come up with excuses and say things like, I forgot to someone I dislike or find uncomfortable. <laughs> well, I say that to a lot of people. <laughs> Plenty of people that I like and find yeah. comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> I find you comfortable, Tim. I, I, I find, find you. you you're comfortable. like a you're like a couch. <laughs> <laughs> I deliberately procrastinate when someone I dislike or find uncomfortable asks me to do something. It's <laughs> kind of passive aggressive, yeah. Yeah, I guess. But I also procrastinate. That's the thing that there is a level of responsibility that they think that we have in general so that like these things might be exceptions to that right. like are very intentional um, right when someone i dislike or find uncomfortable asks me for a favor i don't give it my all and do a sloppy job again not something that i associate at all with passive aggression yeah like again there might be a real cultural difference here in in the use of the term and what but like a lot of these i just don't think of as passive aggressiveness um, but you can't argue with math you know? Well, you know, they they uh, validated it with like a bunch of Korean scales. Maybe maybe this is just maybe this is actually such an open and shut case of a valid scale um, in, yeah. in, in Korea. Probably in <laughs> Korea. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. our Korean listeners can can chime in <laughs> and let us know <laughs> if we have mainly to. let us know what it means to find somebody uncomfortable. Yes, um, exactly. That's, that's and also there part. was another one that I had no idea. Oh, delay. The delay. Yeah, I would like to delay. know what that what that was translated for. Yeah, like do you let the air out of their tires? <laughs> 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 uh, 
Nevertheless, uh, if one feels like they or someone they know is struggling with passive aggressive tendencies, <laughs> it's important to seek help. This is in the Psychology Today article. It's important to seek help as passive aggression may be a cause or symptom of other problems such as depression, self-harm, stress-related disorders, or eating disorder. So depending on how you score on this, like you may need to seek help. Like, I don't know. Maybe there's like a huge, what's the passive aggressive hotline? Um, (laughs) Maybe there's a huge clinical personality disorder component that I'm just not aware of that's like makes this like actual troubling behavior. But I passive aggressiveness to me is like really on the low end of problematic um, uh, as, as far as personalities go. I know, it's pathological. By the way, I scored low on this, I think. So I'm not passive aggressive at all. So you can never, ever accuse me. That <laughs> just shows the infallibility of the scale. Right there. <laughs> all right. Uh, we'll be right back to talk about Blood Meridian, our concluding we think part. It would be amazing if we couldn't conclude, but <laughs> I don't think we do it for this. Episode. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, BetterHelp. Have you ever experienced those moments in life when you knew exactly what was good for you, but somehow you can't seem to get it done? Like you're fully aware of what you should do, what's in your best interest, but for whatever reason, you can't make it happen? Well, then you're probably like me then, and you're not alone. The good news is that for many people, therapy turns out to be an effective way to figure out what's holding you back so that you can start working for yourself instead of against yourself. I've seen firsthand how therapy has been able to transform the lives of some of my friends and family, and it really isn't just for people who've experienced severe major events, trauma, or is undergoing severe depression. Uh, It's for anyone who wants to improve their mental well-being. And therapy is a powerful tool for helping personal growth. It helps you learn coping skills, helps you learn how to set boundaries. It generally just allows you to become the best version of yourself that you can be. It's like having a trusted guide to navigate through your life's challenges. So if you've been thinking at all about starting therapy, BetterHelp makes it incredibly easy. Everything is online. It's designed to be convenient to be flexible, to be tailored to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire. They match you with a licensed therapist uh, who will suit your needs. And if they don't, this is the great part about BetterHelp, you can switch therapists anytime at no additional charge until you find the right fit for you. So if you're ready to take that step toward living a happier, uh, healthier life, if you're ready to Put some investment into your mental health and well-being. BetterHelp is there to support you every step of the way. Start your journey to a better you with BetterHelp today. Visit BetterHelp.com VBW and you'll get 10% off of your first month of therapy. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com VBW. Our thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the episode where we like to take a moment to thank all the listeners who not only listen to the podcast, but who reach out and get in touch with us about it, what they agree with, what they disagree with. We hear both, and we appreciate both. It's one of the most rewarding parts of doing this podcast. If you would like to reach out to us, you can email us verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet to us at peas at Tamler or at Very Bad Wizards. You can follow us on Instagram. You can like us on Facebook and comment on the episodes at those pages. You can also join the Lively subreddit, which I think just crossed 10,000 people on the subreddit. And then you could give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We love seeing those reviews. Apparently, just based on listening to all these other podcasts who talk about how important five-star reviews and ratings are, it will help people find out about the podcast who don't already. And of course, we thank all the listeners who spread the word by word of mouth as well. If you would like to support us in even more tangible ways, uh, there are a few different ways you can do that. You can buy some swag, you can give us a one-time or recurring donation on PayPal, or you can join the Patreon community on Patreon, we are just so thrilled to have this community. The last three episodes are all because listeners on Patreon both suggested that we do a deep dive into Blood Meridian and then voted for it for the listener-selected episode. And that's so great, not only because of the tangible support that all of that provides, but honestly, we would not have, we wouldn't have been motivated to do such an in-depth discussion of this book if it wasn't for our patrons. At $1 and up per episode, so $2 a month, um, you get all ad-free episodes plus seven volumes of Dave's Beats. At $2 and up, you get access to all of our bonus episodes, including The Ambulators, which has taken a tiny little hiatus as we gear up to do the 11th and 12th episodes of the second season, but you'll get access to all the episodes we've done up till now, the best podcast that has ever been on the internet. You also get access to Overton Windows, and I just recorded another one with Bob Wright. Um, that will be our third. Uh, $5 and up, you get access to our Brothers Karamazov miniseries, and you get to vote on the listener-selected episode. And finally, at $10 and up per episode, you get all of the below, all of the previous. Plus, you get to ask us a question every month, which we will answer in video form for you and in audio form for all of our patrons at the bonus episode tier. Listen, I know we say this every episode, but we really mean it. It's so important to us. We're so grateful. We appreciate the support. We love the interaction that we have with you. So thank you. Now let's get back to Blood Meridian. Okay, let's get to part three, Tamler. Part three of our discussion of the amazing book Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. We last left off, we, like our plan was to talk about our favorite scenes, and I think we got through two of them last time, right? Yeah. Um, uh, what we wanted to talk about this time was a scene. Let's. You want to start with the judge's coin trick by the fire? Yeah. The Glanton gang at this point has left Tucson 
and they're on the road. They're on the road. They come uh, at night and just camp. I don't know. Uh, Can I read the opening for this? They rode out at dusk. The corporal in the gatehouse above the portal came out and called them to halt, but they did not. They rode 21 men and and a dog and a little flatbed cart aboard which the idiot and his cage had been lashed as if for a sea journey. It's just like just that vision of like <laughs> you have these 21 guys on horseback and a dog and then this cart where, you know, this man is just in a cage clutching at the bars as if for a, a sea journey. Yeah. They're uh, they're camped out for the night. Um, Glanton is staring into the embers of the fire. There's some there's a, kind of like a cool uh, little a part where the narrator describes Glanton sitting by the fire. Um, he's saying basically like their company has changed quite a bit since they started. They're down a, a bunch of men. So many gone, defected or dead. The Delawares are all slain. He watched the fire and if he saw portents there, it was much the same to him. He would live to look upon the Western Sea and he was equal to whatever might follow for he was complete at every hour. Whether his history should run concomitant with men and nations, whether it should cease he long forsworn all weighing of consequence and allowing as he did that men's destinies are given, yet be, yet he usurped to contain within him all that he would ever be in the world and all that the world would be to him and be his charter written in the earth stone itself. He claimed agency and said so, and he'd drive the remorseless sun onto its final endarkment as if he'd ordered it all ages since, before there were paths anywhere, before there were men or sons to go upon them. Yeah, it's a long sentence. And I like the next sentence. Across from him sat the vast abhorrence of the judge. So good. <laughs> Very short sentence. The vast abhorrence. The vast That's, abhorrence. Is that passive aggressive of the name? <laughs> I, I, this is an interesting description of Glanton. I had it highlighted too. Like, what do you yeah. think of it? Like, it almost is praising him as at least having a kind of integrity. He He knows who he is and he is like not trying to claim it's any different. Yeah. I think I was more dismissive of Glanton than this passage makes me think I should have been um, by sort of describing him as a mindlessly violent. There is, there is like an interesting psychology that we get from Glanton here. That's that is central to his character, but that's not really dwelled on that much. And it's this, yeah, like he's singular of focus. It's very consistent with him not wanting his fortune to be read. Like he doesn't yeah. he doesn't want to know. He's willing to let it all play out. And that means that I think that sometimes he's willing to be reckless, like it says, he's forsworn all weighing of consequence. But he's doing it not just out of some, you know, personality trait where he's just like not good at weighing consequences, which I think is kind of what I was making him out to be, but rather by like this Either I will envelop destiny or it will envelop me or something like that. Yeah. This part where he says, uh, allowing that he did that men's destinies are given. Yeah. Which means like it's kind of. It's just going to happen. Kind of fatalism. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yet he usurped to contain with him all that he would ever be in the world and all the world would be to him. He claimed agency and said so. Yeah. He's like a compatibilist. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 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 <laughs> Glanton, 1843. Uh, <laughs> Take that, Dirk Paraboom. <laughs> uh, but, like, I do think there is something about Glanton that as brutal and, like, you know, gruesome as he can be, he is 
set uh, as in distinction to the judge, uh, yeah. the vast importance of the judge, which is why I do think the kid is more loyal to Glanton. He finds Glanton more suited to his way of like approaching yeah. the world. And the judge is just like he talks too much. He yeah. he tries to be too philosophical. He tries to justify things. It's just not for the kid. Yeah. And I think the perspective of somebody who is is uh, not as verbal, like somebody who's who keeps their cards close um, to them, yeah. like the judge is a vast abhorrence. Like you talk yeah. too much, just like you said, just fucking shut up and do it or don't do it or whatever. <laughs> right. um, I uh, and there's also like this um, this theme of of uh, fatalism and destiny and like again with the flipping of the coins. Um, where, and a randomness, and but a like randomness. a bo- yeah. yeah, both. Yeah, right. You, by the way, the kid is barely in this chapter. There's one, uh, just a few sentences after what you read. Uh, you get when Glanton raised his head, he saw the kid across the fire from him, squatting in his blanket, watching the judge. That's almost all you get from the kid yeah, in this otherwise right. very long chapter. This is like one where he just kind of recedes a little bit. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Totally. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. Like I, uh, in, in my head, like the kid is, is almost the narrator, even though obviously he's not. Um, yeah. Can we talk about the narrator for a second, actually? Yeah. The way he writes and describes things. How do you understand the narrator's connection to the action in the novel? It's funny because I think like on first reading, I was like, well, this is a narrator who is purposefully omniscient and distant and not, not making judgments. Um, but then you get things like the vast abhorrence of the judge mm-hmm. and you get that there's an infusion, there is a, an infusion of, of the narrator's worldview. And, but I can't tell what it is because sometimes when he's describing like in, in a few paragraphs down, he's talking about the flames sawed in the wind and the embers paled and deepened and paled and deepened like the blood beat of some living thing eviscerate upon the ground before them. And they watch the fire, which does contain within it something of men themselves in as much as they are less without it and are divided from the or- their origins yeah. and are exiles for each fire is all fire, the first fire and the last ever to be. So he's like espousing a philosophy. Like this is not just like, and then this happened and then that happened. Right. And, and, yeah. and the narrator will do that uh, quite a bit, but trying to pin down what exactly the, the philosophy of the narrator is. Anyway, it's kind of interesting and it might affect how we understand the, the actual coin yeah, uh, trick. Right, right. yeah. <laughs> so the judge at this point is not by the fire. The judge has gone out on one of his weird errands, like his weird little missions. Obscure uh, missions. <laughs> Obscure missions. They, the men start having a conversation. Somebody asks if it's true that at some time there had been two moons in the sky. And um, the ex-priest eyed the false moon above them. By the way, it took some time trying to figure out what a false moon was. And as far as I can tell, he's talking about the ring around the moon, maybe. That's what they were seeing. Yeah. Uh, so asked it, it, if it were true that at one time there had been two moons in the sky and the ex-priest eyed the false moon above and said that it may well have been so, but certainly the wise high God in his dismay at the proliferation of lunacy on this earth must have wetted a thumb and leaned down out of the abyss and pinched it hissing into extinction. Um, so, yeah, God must have put out one of the moons because the moon was what people thought 
drove people crazy. So he didn't want so much crazy on the earth, but he needed to leave something for the birds to navigate at night. <laughs> this is my favorite thing. So then uh, the, it says that the question was then put whether on Mars or other planets there were other creatures like them. And like all of a sudden the judge is back. The judge you know, is back. like this is if like my wife and my daughter will start talking about boys or something like that. I, <laughs> I will have gone and then all of a sudden I'm like mysteriously back, you know. And, and so he, he comes back and he says, and he's naked and sweating. Half naked, and, half sweating, naked yeah. and sweating. And said they were not and there were no men anywhere in the universe save those upon the earth. Like the fact that he just like kind of rushes back, you know, like <laughs> yeah. who the fuck knows what he was doing uh, but he had to come back to say this makes it it feels like he he needed to say that this we are the only people in the universe you know and then yeah you get this yeah i'm not sure why he says that like that's one of the things i want to ask you like why do you think there's nothing that i know of in like the philosophy that the judge is espousing that makes this particularly a necessary view like there could be like tons of beings in in the universe yeah i don't get this either but it seems important to him yeah. You know, and then he says what I think is a key quote for the book. The truth about the world, he said, is that anything is possible. Had you not seen it all from birth and thereby bled it of its strangeness, it would appear to you for what it is, a hat trick in a medicine show, a fever dream, a trance, be populate with chimeras, having neither analog nor precedent, an itinerant carnival, a migratory tent show whose ultimate destination after many a pitch in many a muddied field is unspeakable and calamitous beyond reckoning. The universe is no narrow thing and the order within is, in it is not constrained by any latitude in its conception to repeat what exists in one part and any other part. Kind of human there, you know, like mm. uh, argument against induction. Even in this world, more things exist without our knowledge than with it. And in the order in creation, which you see is that which you have put there like a string in the maze so you shall not lose your way. For existence has its own order that no man's mind can compass that mind itself being but a fact among others so good uh there's so much here like you, so you much could do an episode just, on, <laughs> just on that there is something that like he's describing what the world would look like if your eyes hadn't lived here for the whole time and it really reminded me of the blooming buzzing confusion of of james and and then like the the mystical james who who basically is like don't let your conceptions and categories um, influence the way that you see the world. And if you can see the world from the eyes of like a, a somebody who has erased their mind of all of their preconceptions and their concepts, and their, yeah, their concepts, yeah, then you will see. You may see it as it is, and it's a fucking weird thing. This this is a very very weird world, yeah, and that fever to me, dream, a fever dream, and it. There is something about the judge that I hadn't thought about, which is just like he's a big he looks like a big baby. He's hairless and he, you know, he's bald and he's naked half of the time. And yeah. it's like yeah, even he how is, he walks in now is like how a baby walks in. Like when they're yeah, in like, like their with diaper. Their, with their onesie, like sort of yeah. like around their waist, you know? Like, <laughs> their big belly hanging out, you know, like <laughs> that's what I call my baby, a vast abhorrence. Yeah. That's her nickname. <laughs> um, and he keeps himself youthful. So he's like an eternal, he's eternally seeing the world 
with the the eyes of a of a child in this particular way. I mean, in other ways, he's violent. Yeah. He has beginner's mind, seeing the world in this way that isn't corrupted by your concepts and the structures and categories that we impose on the world, which is what he say, like the order in creation, which we see is that which we, which you have put there. It also remind me of Bergson. <laughs> Henri. Henri Bergson. Yeah. Uh, this idea of just life as this river. And we put the order of the, you know, like it, it, it sounds a little nihilist. Do you think he's, this is ethical at all? Or is this pure metaphysics? Is this a kind of laying the groundwork for like everything is permitted? Yeah, I don't. I I think I'm of the opinion that he doesn't have an ethic. Like he's yeah. that it's all metaphysics. That there is no normativity, um, ethical normativity, in his yeah. world. And whatever normativity there is, we have put there, so yeah. we will not lose our way. And, and, and now, what this has to do with the fact that there are no men anywhere in the universe, like you yeah, said, it's like not clear, you know? Yeah, that part I was like, does he just need to feel as if, I, you know, I can see a sort of um, self-centeredness and narcissism involved with thinking that you're you're the only mind who has achieved this in the whole universe, so the, the universe is yours. Basically, yeah. like, he wants right. the world to be his, but maybe he wants the universe to be his. He um, wants to be the suzerain of the universe. Yeah, right. This is where I relate to Davy Brown, who spits into the fire and tells the judge, that's some more of your craziness. <laughs> yeah. But, like, not with... It doesn't get under the judge's skin, like, when the kid uh, says it later. Right. You know? No, yeah, because what is Davy Brown to the, to the judge, you know? The judge smiled... He placed the palms of his hands upon his chest and breathed the night air, and he stepped closer and squatted and held up one hand. He turned that hand, and there was a gold coin between his fingers. Where is the coin, Davy? And I love this. <laughs> Davy says, I'll notify you where to put the coin. The judge, and that doesn't even bother the judge. He's basically like, stick it up your ass. Like, the judge doesn't care. The judge swung his hand, and the coin winked overhead in the firelight. It must have been fastened to some subtle lead, horsehair perhaps, for it circled the fire and returned to the judge and he caught it in his hand and smiled. So here the narrator is suggesting that it's a trick. Like, I don't think the narrator will do this for the second part of this, but... No, I uh, think this is what... Th this is a good thing by, you know, stepping out for a second. A good method of by McCarthy to give the narrator the necessary credibility for mm -hmm. us to be amazed when when he does say like ah, I don't know I don't know yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah um the judge says the arc of circling bodies is determined by the length of their tether said the judge moons coins men his hands moved as if he were pulling something from one fist in a series of elongations watch the coin davy he said he flung it and cut an arc through the firelight and was gone in the darkness beyond. They watched the night where it had vanished and they watched the judge and in their watching, some the one and some the other, they were a common witness. The coin, Davy, the coin, whispered the judge. He sat erect and raised his hand and smiled around. The coin returned back out of sight, out of the night and crossed the fire with a faint high droning and the judge's raised hand was empty and then it held the coin. There was a light slap and it held the coin. Even so, some claimed that he had thrown the coin away and palmed another like it and made the sound with his tongue, for he was himself a cunning old malabarista. And he said himself, as he put the coin away, what all men knew that there are coins and false coins. <laughs> and then in the morning, some did walk over the ground where the coin had gone. But if any man found it, he kept it to himself. And with the sunrise, they were mounted and riding again. 
So now the narrator is just being a journalist. Like, I don't fucking yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But he's, I, I love this. We touched on this last time or the first time, I don't know, uh, that most of this book can be explained. Like, he could just be a charlatan. He could just be like a sleight of hand artist. And to these guys, like, that seems amazing. Certainly, this doesn't sound like anything near the most, like, difficult kind of coin trick to do. But I don't know. The one where you're where he throws it into the night and then uh, you watch it come back, uh, returned back out of the night. And then with that like yeah. poop, slap, like that's a tough trick. I think yeah. that the, the, that the narrator is being pretty clear to give it like an an, uh, uh, an out here, like by saying like he could. OK, he could have made that noise with his with his mouth and. And it could just be that, like, you think you saw it return because, like, of the what the the action that the, you know, your eyes are expecting that um, fire of and the fire uh, reflections and whatever. Yeah, yeah. shadows. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he but, is a col- he is a cunning old malabarista. Yeah. So here's what I think about this issue. I think there's no answer to this. I saw on the Reddit page that there was people who. They took you to be arguing that there's nothing supernatural about the judge, except maybe until the end. Until the end. I don't think that there's an answer to this question, and I don't think that that's like, um, like, I think they're both are true. Like, it both is and isn't super. I guess this is what I'm trying to say. It's not that I think it's unknowable and McCarthy is leaving it open and we can come up with theories that both fit and stuff like that. I don't think it's like that. Like, I sometimes think with David Lynch, like, you know, like it's a puzzle that you should try to solve and there's no answer to the question, but it's fruit. Like, I really think it is both at the same time. Like, if both he both is a cunning old Malabarista and a charlatan and a hoodwinker and he has supernatural powers uh both like that's kind of how i think about it you know but i I, like it's weird because i don't really have this feeling about most works of art but i i feel like i do about this particular question but what about you yeah i i also don't think that mccarthy's saying i know but i'm not telling you but I, I do think that there is a local answer as to whether or not this was a sleight of hand trick or a supernatural trick. And I think that McCarthy, by, by giving us perfectly plausible, almost banal explanations for some of the things that we take to be these wondrous acts from the judge, he is asking you a question. Do you think that this judge is supernatural? And... Whether or not he has an answer in his head or whether he's just pre- presenting them both, I think this is the action that the reader is has to take. It's like a, is like, are you going to believe that this judge is supernatural? And I think that really might mean something throughout the whole book. Like, I, I think it really could be that this guy is just a fucking asshole who's picked up a few languages and some sleight of hand tricks. There's nothing that special about it until the very end, which throws throws me for a loop where i'm like okay is mccarthy really expressing an opinion here but you mean that he doesn't age because we don't even know what he did to the kid no we have no idea uh but that he doesn't age and and but mccarthy if mccarthy just wanted to make us believe he was supernatural he wouldn't give us these little hints that maybe it's not you know 
that's what I mean. Like, I yeah. think it's both. Like, I think it's like, you know, uh, hyperposition or whatever, like quantum, like, super like position. it's actual yeah. superposition. It's actually both um, at the I same time. That. Like, it's he's so, like, both a charlatan is- and it's not. Su- and I don't mean he's both a charlatan, but happens to have supernatural powers. I mean, he's both a charlatan and this was just a trick. And it's just and it's not just a trick. I think the whole point is this is this is all a fever dream, right? It's like he was saying before, this is a uh, a hat trick in a medicine show, an itinerant car- carnival, a migratory tent show. It's all a fucking trick and it's all supernatural. Like it's all a dream. It's all you're like a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get I get what you're saying. And like part of me is is with you. Like, I don't know about the. So I don't know whether you mean or whether it matters that this particular trick, say, both was sleight of hand and it wasn't. Like I, I don't, I, I can't get behind that thought. I could certainly get behind the thought that this book is both things, and yeah. there is no, there's, it's more than just saying like, you know, he left it up to you at the end, like fucking Christopher Nolan in the spinning top or something. Like um, right now, it's definitely <laughs> right. Like yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> well, which I think there might be an answer to that. But I do too, actually. I think he's yeah. definitely dreaming the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but to me, this book achieves a different level of fucking amazing when one real possibility is that one of the things McCarthy is saying is that this violent man is a charlatan and and with his with his fucking dime store tricks convinced a bunch of ignorant people that his violence was like something magical um and i don't think i need to believe that but to know that it is an optional reading of this to me gives the world just as much wonder like this fucking heartless world could very well be that this asshole of a charlatan conned people into thinking that he was magical that's almost more devastating to like as a worldview like there's nothing actually there this is just like a actually a heartless center of the yeah that seems in the spirit of the book too Mm -hmm. like the one thing i would say is they're not fully taken in either though they just don't put up a big fight (laughs) about it but they're not it's not like they're like in a cult and he's their cult leader that's not the dynamic in that gang no the kid i don't think the kid ever believes it until maybe that last moment in the jakes (laughs) i think the kid also just doesn't like he's just like he just wants to like go to sleep and uh, (laughs) hear the judge carry on about philosophy and what the universe actually is like that is not a kid kind of conversation right and so the fact that the narrator is telling me, not in the voice of the judge, that um, that fire contained all fires and that, you know, that basically like, again, something like a very Gnostic belief about like th- there being, we all emanate from the same divine spark and that divine spark exists in every single human being and it will return to God and into the original. Like that, that the narrator is bothering to express those thoughts it's, it makes it such a better book because if this were just like, oh, like you fool, don't you realize if you had read this with a debunking mindset, this would like all go away? No, like it doesn't go away to me. Like if I read it that way, the way that McCarthy's written it, I still have this like enormous sense of like spirituality to it, you know? Right. I also think the distinction between what's supernatural 
a kind of a, a negative supernatural force and a natural negative force is completely blurred in this book. Yeah. So when they then go and see the black and desiccated shapes of horse and mules that travelers had set afoot, the beasts, beasts had died with their necks stretched in agony in the sand and now upright and blind and lurching askew with scraps of blackened leather hanging from the fretwork of their ribs. You know, these starving poor horses and mules yeah. uh, howling after the endless tandem suns that passed above them. That's like, there's no suggestion that that's supernatural, but no. it's just as fucked up and weird and strange as if it were like as if the judge had just manifested the coin out of thin air and had yeah, it come back to him no, you're so right and as you were even saying that i was like oh i don't think i even caught this but like i think mccarthy is saying like you're you're talking about the coin trick after all the shit that I've told you that has gone down in this world, like you're caring whether there was horse hair attached to that coin or not. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's all like it's crazy. all a fucking fever dream. Like, yeah, God, like, exactly. Did you yeah. not see the Comanches? Like, you care? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, totally. like a guy like pissing and shooting puppies in the river yeah. that the judge just bought. right. Like all of that. Like it's just that's supernatural. Uh, that like not supernatural. Like that in some ways is yeah. above nature like in this yeah. distressing way um and and i think you're right like it by the end it doesn't those distinctions are so blurred we you know the old lady I, that's like that's like a brittle like shell of a yeah. husk of a woman you know yeah, like right. what that <laughs> right. could, that could happen but yeah. by you know by the end i guess it's interesting we, we could talk about this later by the end whether the kid ended up being so intimidated at the thought of the judge in the back of his mind that he drunk in a bar one night swore that he hadn't aged who who knows you know yeah like yeah should we talk about the like where this goes you know this is where he gets very explicitly nietzschean both in his proclamation that war is inedible inevitable and really kind of what we're here to do what yeah. human beings are are here to do and whether it's games or uh passive aggressive contests or sports <laughs> it's all war in the end war is god but then someone named irving i'm not even sure a guy named irving says might does not make right the man that wins in some combat is not vindicated morally and the, the judge's reply to this is moral law is an invention of mankind for the disenfranchised of the powerful in favor of the weak so the kind of slave morality idea historical law subverts it at every turn a moral view can never be proven right or wrong by any ultimate test a man falling dead in a duel is not thought thereby to be proven in error as to his views has sam harris responded to this by the way uh <laughs> his very involvement in such a trial gives evidence of a new and broader view the willingness of the principles to forego further argument as the triviality which it is in fact is and to petition directly to the chain of the historical absolute clearly indicates of how little moment and are, are are the opinions and of what great moment are the divergences thereof for the argument is indeed trivial but not so the separate wills thereby made manifest i mean that really is like maybe it's a slight caricature of nietzsche I, but 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 whatever whether it's it is in that spirit i do love this idea that that is actually 
super uh, consistent with the this chance determines everything is kind of the ultimate thing to do is engage in a game of warfare where unlike any other game, there's real literal skin in the game and yeah. you're letting de- fate, chance, randomness decide who was right in the end without having, you're not appealing to any principle. You're not saying like there's any normativity. You're just saying like, let's fight to the death and whoever wins turns out that was the right one. Like, or not even right. That was just, that's the one who gets to keep living. Yeah, in fact, he says it's not just because he dies. It doesn't mean that he was in error because he at least tried to get in the duel. Like the key is to just be in the duel, willing to stand up for it. He's kind of saying what I think the kid more lives by. You don't talk about it and make principles about it. You just do it. Yeah. Here there can be no special pleading. Here are considerations of equity and rectitude and moral right rendered void and without warrant. And here are the views of the litigants despised. Decisions of life and death, of what shall be and what shall not. Beggar all question of right. In elections of these magnitudes are all lesser ones subsumed, moral, spiritual, natural. It's like the only the only answer to this is who dies and who lives and we all end up dying anyway. And then he says, but what says the priest? And the uh, Tobin looks up but doesn't go against it. And he yeah. takes this to be evidence that the priest, even though he calls, he says he has a blasphemous tongue and blah, blah, blah. Like you don't like the fact that you're with us right now. Yeah. Do you think he's speaking to the kid here? Really? Oh. I hadn't thought of that. Because he doesn't give a shit about what the priest actually thinks. But uh, I do love that he tells, doing... I do love that he says to the priest, the priest who tries to be on a moral high ground in that moment, he says, yeah. ah, priest, what could I ask of you that you've not already given? Because you're here. Because you're here. You're playing the game. You're You're doing exactly what you probably would say that you shouldn't do. But so there's no argument. Nihil deceit. <laughs> um... Uh, that, that's the thing about the duel. Like the fact that you fought the duel says what you believe. Yeah. Like it's your actions are what determine what you actually believe. By yeah. the way, this uh, he is asking the priest something that he knows the priest can't answer in public. That's going to get him a higher passive aggressive. <laughs> Would you say like a five out of six? Yeah. Um, the uh, judge would be like, that's a six out of six. I do that all the time. But I can never get the kid. I can never rope the kid. Yeah, I think, like, I, I hadn't thought of it, but um, given what I think is going on between the judge and the kid, yeah, I actually think that the judge is talking to the kid. What When he says, what could I ask of you that you've not already given? It's sort of an attempt to convince the kid that he's already part. Uh, but yeah. in reality, he's not, or he wouldn't have to try to convince him. This is the thing about the judge. There's a little almost defensiveness, insecurity, like rationalization that it, you almost feel like he's going on and on about this because he knows that there are some people that uh, aren't fully buying it. Yeah. There are certain people, Toadvine, the priest, Davy Brown, who will indulge this. And then there are other people, Glanton would never like get involved in this. You know, the kid doesn't get involved in this. Like there's some parts of the group that you get the sense are like, ah, that's just the judge, whatever. Hopefully I'll put on a a shirt at some (laughs) point. But (laughs) (laughs) Although I also think that there is maybe a view among some of them that 
the judge is so poison poisonous of tongue that you shouldn't you shouldn't talk to him. I don't think Glant. That's not what makes Glant. No, I'm not saying it's Glant. I'm saying that some of the men, some of the men who who are not engaging with the judge, might actually be intimidated. No, Glanton doesn't give a fuck. I mean, Glanton is living what the judge believes. Um, (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's the exactly that puts the point like that I've been trying to make. I really do think that what the judge has been espousing is not exactly what he's practicing. He does a lot of fucking talking. He does some horrifying things, too. He's not all talk, but he's a lot of talk. He's a lot of talk. And it's unclear to me whether like the judge is out there shooting motherfuckers in the same way, actually. I don't know. You know, yeah. his victims tend not that, you know, they're puppies and children. Um that's a good point. Yeah. What is he epiphenomenal? Like, would this gang be doing everything they're doing anyway if yes. it weren't for the judge? Yeah. yeah. He might as well be like a, a a little demon on on you know who's just like riding with them. Um, but I don't think they need persuading either way. Yeah. Uh, but that's why it's so fucking cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I, I feel that way. The world wouldn't be any different if I weren't here. But I get to like kind of narrate. <laughs> But you don't consider yourself a suzerain. <laughs> no, no. And I also don't like to take my shirt off. Um, <laughs> should we move to the baptism scene? Or did yes, you speaking okay. of taking shirts off. <laughs> yeah. Okay, why don't you take this one? Oh, before we wrap up this scene, I wanted to give one last little great McCarthy just giving us a, just a perfect visual of this. Uh, the end of the scene. The keeper led the imbecile down from its cage and tethered it by the fire with a braided horsehair rope that it could not chew through. And it stood leaning in its collar with its hand outheld as if it yearned for the flames. Glanton's dog rose and sat watching it and the idiot swayed and drooled with its dull eyes falsely brightened by the fire. Falsely brightened by the fire. Uh The judge had been holding the femur upright in order to better illustrate its analogies to the prevalent bones of the country about and he let it fall in the sand and closed his book. There is no mystery to it, he said. The recruits blinked dully, the new recruits they picked up from Tucson. Your heart's desire is to be told some mystery. The mystery is there is no mystery mystery uh, and this is where the ex-priest says i as if he were no mystery himself the bloody old hoodwinker yeah, yeah. It's, it's great like the that the mystery is that there is no mystery is is like the darkest possible conclusion yeah, exactly. you could reach yeah so yeah then they're all of a sudden out of the blue this woman sarah borginis she just appears by them by this by the yuma and the river and she just, she's a huge woman. She existed. She was an innkeeper, I guess a madam at some point. She was uh, a real Texas kind of figure, like one of these Texas oh. characters. Uh, married like five times, sometimes legally, sometimes not. She just goes there and she's like, what are you doing with this like guy and this big uh, drooling guy in a cage? And she just like dresses them down. She takes the, she, t- she you know, she yells at the brother. Um, the brother is like, look, I, you take him then. I can't do anything with him. And uh, my, our parents are dead. So she takes him. They lead him down to the river. Again, the kid and Toadvine were not here, but you just get a little glimpse of them 
uh, this is another chapter where they barely figure into it, but it says Toadvine and the kid passed them as they were dragging the cart along. The idiot was clutching the bars and hooting at the water, and some of the women had started up a hymn. And like the Toadvine's like, what the fuck? And the kid doesn't know. And they open the cage, let the idiot out, and then she. It, you know, it's funny, like, this is referred to as a baptism, but it's not, like, explicit that that's what she's doing. Like, she could just be watching him. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, I guess, aside from, like, the singing hymns, maybe, that's going on, but they could be doing that just as she's watching. Yeah. So they, uh, you know, they clean him up. He, he, he clearly, it, it's so spare in terms of how this is described yeah, absolutely. Um, like i have like, like i had to read it multiple times to try to understand exactly what was going on uh, yeah because like all of a sudden she's there yeah. and then she's taken him you know and yeah. and nobody really like not even the judge puts up a fight maybe because he knows maybe he's not there we don't even know so I didn't All even notice sudden, until recently uh, this uh, when i was reading today that when they say he sees himself in it that that it's that he was seeing his reflection in the in the water. <laughs> yeah, for the yeah. first time. Right. Also, probably like he's probably not seen his reflection yeah, before. Totally. So then they like dress him up, not in like well fitting clothes, but uh, they grease his hair. They give him sweets, and he sat <laughs> drooling, watching the fire, greatly to their admiration. Uh, this is like you know, like rich white women. Uh, <laughs> And so then what's so weird is that like he's in underwear, they kiss him goodnight, they tuck him in, they go to sleep, and then he immediately just is gone. Like he just goes, he takes off all the clothes uh, and goes back to the river and then he enters the water and then just like, like he obviously can't swim, he drowns. And the judge on his midnight, this is such a funny narrator thing, yeah. by the way. Now the judge on his midnight rounds was passing along at just this place, stark naked himself. Such encounters being commoner than most men, men suppose. Or who would survive any crossing by night? And he stepped into the river, seized up the drowning idiot, snatching it aloft by the heels like a great midwife and slapping it on the back to let the water out. So he saves him from drowning. Yeah. A birth scene or a baptism or some ritual not yet inaugurated into any canon. He twisted the water from its hair and he gathered the naked and sobbing fool into his arms and he carried it up into the camp and restored it among its fellows. It's yeah. almost like the judge actually does have some fondness for the idiot. Yeah, maybe. But as I was uh, reading about this scene today, it could be that the <clears throat> the idiot, well, he has a name now, Tamler, James Robert. Oh, yes. Um, James Robert. Uh, he was trying to kill himself. Like, it could be that this whole thing that happened where they, like, dressed him up normal and, like, that it was so, so weird to him. Um, and it, it seems like he, he didn't it seem like he wanted to, like, almost jump in the fire. That the judge isn't saving him, but rather preventing him from being, like, ending the misery that he was that he was feeling for the first time you know he's been caged up he gets a taste of the water maybe he realizes i can end this all like he's been in a cage he's he realizes he could drown and the minute that like the ladies leave him he crosses that amphitheater and tries to drown himself and here comes the judge 
and lifts them up. Yeah, it could be. It's a darker way of, of thinking about it. And and the judge kind of keeps him like a gimp from this point on. So, Well, he was a gimp before. <laughs> no, I mean like, like the gimp from uh, Pulp Fiction. Yeah, but that's just because they burned the cage. The women burned the cage. Otherwise, he would at least get to be in the cage. Yeah, but like the judge is, I'm saying, walking around with him like on a leash, like his fucking little pet. If you don't want him to do that, then don't burn his cage. Uh, <laughs> no. his but he doesn't need. A, what I'm saying is, he doesn't need to bring him around. Like he doesn't need like him to be. He could have just like left him. Well, then he'll just run off. You can't just <laughs> let him run off. He could build another cage. <laughs> there are leash laws um, for idiots in this time. Don't judge. <laughs> what is the judge a judge of? <laughs> yeah, a judge. What is he a judge of, though? Um, so. This is so sparse. Like yeah. they tuck him in, they go to sleep, and then it just immediately goes to him being naked, walking through the amphitheater back to the river. Like, yeah. like it could easily be that he, my God, like I get to swim in the river. That was amazing. That was fun. Like, yeah. I guess I feel like it, like I get the sense that he's been treated so horribly, so inhumanly that, like, he wouldn't make the decision to kill himself. I don't even think he would know that going to a river would actually result in his death. And so I and guess I don't fully it, buy that. Yeah. That, it, that I mean, line. it does. The narrator describes it as, as him losing his footing. So yeah, that's right. not quite um, what yeah. you'd, you'd think, but you know, who knows? I think I think maybe it's even darker that the idiot doesn't have the conception of doing that. That requires like having like a more normal, like a more normal human relation to life. He like animals don't decide to just kill themselves, you know, and he is half animal the way he's been treated. But that's why him seeing himself in the reflection for the first time to me is like all of a sudden he gets this sense of self. Like he gets that, that, um, whatever that level of consciousness that humans have all of a sudden that self-reflective, uh, mm. ability. And if the first thing he thinks when he gets that is, let me end this, like, that's just yeah. creepy. <laughs> what an image too, of like the judge naked at yeah. night, lifting this kid up by the ankle, this like Achilles, like he just dipped yep. him, you know? Um, and totally. the strength to do it the size to yeah. do it and um happening to 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 be walking by uh naked the, the judge Such, really has well, the ability yeah, don't to judge those things happened all the time like <laughs> yeah. what are you talking about <laughs> i didn't understand that either what does he mean when he says uh um, or who would survive yeah. any crossing by night yeah i don't know yeah uh he seized up the drowning idiot birth scene or a baptism or some ritual, like not inaugurated into any canon, but really he's not reborn. Like yeah. he's just goes back to being the same, but this time he's on a leash instead of in a cage, you know, maybe spiritually accepted Jesus into his heart at that moment. You don't know. Uh, you don't know. That's, it's, <laughs> I think it's both. It's a superposition. <laughs> he's also a Jew. Um, he, uh, also what I wasn't sure about was why they were well i guess no that, that makes sense they when they brought him sweets and he sat drooling and watched the fire greatly to their admiration i guess that's yeah. just self-congratulation like the like yeah oh we're so virtuous yeah. <laughs> we're the original virtue signalers <laughs> so let's talk about the epilogue and yeah. let's cast this because we yeah. gotta wrap this yes, up that's right 
Okay, book's over. Epilogue. In the in italics. In the dawn, there is a man progressing over the plain by means of holes which he is making in the ground. He uses an implement with two handles and he chucks it into the hole and he enkindles the stone in the hole with his steel, hole by hole, striking the fire out of the rock which God has put there. On the plain behind him are the wanderers in search of bones and those who do not search. And they move haltingly in the light like mechanisms whose movements are monitored with escapement and palate so that they appear restrained by a prudence or reflectiveness which has no inner reality, and they cross in their progress one by one that track of holes that runs to the rim of the visible ground and which seems less the pursuit of some continuance than the verification of a principle, a validation of sequence and causality as if each round and perfect hole owed its existence to the one before it there on that prairie upon which are the bones and the gatherers of bones and those who do not gather." He strikes fire in the hole and draws out his steel. Then they all move on again. Yeah. What do you make of it? <laughs> uh, you first. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this one, clearly there can't be an, a real answer to this. But so a lot of people think that what he's describing here about the man making holes in the ground and progressing across the plane is like putting up telephone poles, you know, like those the 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 things that you use to dig those holes are like these you know two yeah two when Al's wear engine is all it's, pissed exactly, off exactly yeah. yeah and so they're sort of progressing across the continent uh, maybe um, I've, that now it doesn't give <laughs> it doesn't say anything about what he means by this but but that it's talking about some form of progress te- technological progress like progressing here meaning crossing crossing the continent it's like a new form of uh conquest yeah and i i like kind of the the when he's talking about striking the fire out of the rock which god has put there it seems very much like man harnessing this new technology enabling mankind to harness the power that once only belonged to god um and that sort of view of technology as being being you know like stolen from the gods maybe is what he's alluding to or promethean yeah promethean or or just or just that's that's the advancement of mankind is like to get more and more control over over nature um but when it says striking the fire out of the rock you don't necessarily like you get the sense that something is definitely lost in this i think yeah um, I, and i don't even know what it means because it's so he's he's saying that he enkindles the stone in the hole and initially i thought what this meant was um when we were we when <laughs> when they were building the railroads and they had to like blast through you basically you drill a hole and put gunpowder and tamp it down with a, a steel rod and exp- then explode it. And I thought that's what it was referring to sort of like enkindling the stone of the earth and in that way, sort of like controlling nature. Um, yeah. yeah. Controlling it both like probably for better and for worse and yeah, exactly. maybe for worse because we're just going to find new ways of expressing the violence and urge to dominate and yeah, it'll take a different become form. suzerains yeah. yeah and what do you what what about the the people who are around there searching for bones 
those gatherers yeah. of bones and those who do not gather? I don't know. Like, I really, I almost like feel like I don't. I've I've read a little bit about it. Like, I feel like I've got nothing on this. I, like, I just don't fully get it. Well, and I try. I tried. <laughs> the image of it. Do you know about like natural gas? There is this thing where you go into the rocks and extract something just from the rocks. Like fracking. Yeah, fracking. Yeah. Exactly. Like fracking. Yeah. Getting natural gas through fracking. And like, that's what it kind of reminded me of. That it almost feels wrong what yeah. you're doing. Like, it's one thing to like search for oil. It's another, th- you know, which actually, like, it's another thing to do whatever this weird thing is doing. It does feel like, like you're doing alchemy or something yeah. like that. But that doesn't make sense in the context of the novel, except in like to the extent that it's kind of reflects what you're talking about getting something out of nature maybe in the promethean way that belongs to the gods like yeah. we shouldn't be right. uh, messing with this maybe it's just the next stage in what human beings have been doing for 300,000 years like the new scalping will be the result of what they're doing right now yeah it, the bones part harkens back to me to finding evidence of scalped skulls uh, yeah. in three 300,000 year old skeletons and them moving on like the last sentence he strikes fire in the hole draws out of steel then they all move on again it's just like this is gonna just keep happening and yeah yeah right there's no stopping it the the distinction between the gatherers of bones and those who do not gather might be those who partake in violence and those who don't um, mm-hmm. And that mm. it's all the same in the end, because you're both, yeah, walking. Yeah, uh, you're all still there. You, you're like the priest if you don't gather, right. but you're you're right, gathering you're just there. by you're being still, there. Right. Um, yeah. The last thought I had was maybe the fire and the, taking the fire out of the earth in this case is some sort of metaphor for electricity and the progress of of putting up like electrical poles. So like an optimistic note to end on. But we're going to fix all of this with new technology. Yeah, yeah. Soon you'll have iPhones and (laughs) televisions. I like to think that they're putting, like, they're setting up uh, Trump's glorious wall. You know, like the Trump... I actually have read something that they they might be marking the border between Mexico and America um, in the epilogue, which... Sure, like maybe they yeah, are. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, that is part of the plot of the of the book. Um, yeah. So I did yeah. see Trump's wall, though. We drove <laughs> along uh, the like the border uh, in New Mexico, and this this one road that was just going all across the border, and you see this black kind of fencing all through. It's the, like the Great Wall. Is it as majestic as the Great Wall? It's like I haven't seen the Great Wall of China, so I, but I can't imagine that the Great Wall of China can compare to what I saw in the New Mexico slash Mexico desert. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, so about that blog, I agree. Like, this is, I think I was telling you uh, before, this is as Rorschachy uh, an epilogue as you could possibly have. Like, I'm sure it gives a vibe, like, it, it does give this sort of vibe of like a, a, both progress and sadness um i get reading this where it's like after this big expansion into the west like everything changed and we we ended up like you know creating whatever it was telephone poles electricity poles railroad tracks that joined this all and entered into this new modern age of which 
who knows what his opinion is, but maybe there is no opinion there other than that's just what happened. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting that it's juxtaposed immediately with maybe one of the more surreal scenes of the judge yeah. and, and also the surreally described scenes. He never sleeps. He says he says he'll never die. And it just keeps repeating. He never sleeps. He says he will never die. He dances in light and in shadow. And, and he is a great favorite. He never sleeps. The judge He is dancing, dancing. He says that he will never die. You go from that and the end, by the way, yeah. like to the epilogue. And it's so mundane the episode so just routine it's like you went from this dancing lunatic philosopher archon to just these guys just going actually on that note actually i just now i'm just like seeing that this might consistent with what you're saying wherein it says on the plane behind him are the wanderers and search bones uh, and those who do not search, and they move haltingly in the light like mechanisms whose movements are monitored with escapement and pallet which are wa- <laughs> clock making their watch parts. So like they're mechanistically right. moving so that they appear restrained by a prudence or reflectiveness, which has no inner reality. It's like the technology has made us lose mm. that like spark of creativity or imagination or whatever. Spirituality. Yes. Yeah. So like, we're just now, whereas and these subjectivity. guys, yeah, like they just have rules and like an algorithm for putting this yeah. uh, down. And whereas these guys were crossing the plains just with nothing but will and blood and imagination and violence. Now our movement across the plains is this mechanistic soulless. Um, yep. I think that that's the best interpretation that that I uh, like that I've heard yeah, like, like as horrifying and you know deeply immoral and evil as the judge was he had imagination yeah he had there's creativity. a spirit there he can make yeah. there's a spirit and yeah. you don't get that with these people yeah so be like the judge. alienated be, be, labor be more like the judge yeah <laughs> <laughs> be more like the judge uh, and for the record I only noted this because escapement is a word that I've come across in my desi- in my uh, nerdery about watches. Yeah. <laughs> so you are paid like, off. <laughs> I paid. Someone asked us what our hobbies were going to be, you know, as we get older and like you have too many. Like I don't know how you're going to fit all. That's true. I, I don't I don't have enough money for that particular. Yeah. <laughs> uh all right, let's cast this right. movie. All right. Should we start with director? Yeah, let's start with it. Let's- By the way, there is a movie we should yeah, say yeah. that's planned, but there was this has happened before. We'll see if this ever hits the yeah, screen. This- but the person who's directing it is John Hillcote, who directed The Proposition, which is an Australian Western, which I saw and liked, but don't remember anything about. I think it was from 2005. He also did The Road, right. the Cormac McCarthy adaptation, which I think people liked, but I haven't seen. I have not seen it. Uh, so... Just ground rules here. You and I briefly talked about whether or not we should uh, constrain ourselves to movies that could be made now, like present day people. And I ended up doing that. Um, So you may not have. but I I did too, actually, with a couple of slight deviations. So, yeah. So who do you have? I have. I feel like I need to say something about my choice because it's it's so, this is so difficult a, a call to make. And it is, I was being torn in two directions. One, find a director who can shoot with a kind of uh, the soulless violence that's so central to this. And like the Western, yeah, 
versus a director who who could capture to me like the the beauty of of what this might look like even if it's like an awful beauty um mm-hmm. and i went with the what i think of as the latter so my pick is terrence malick um yeah for this good one yeah. uh, he could definitely was someone i considered yeah yeah i don't know you know if, if it were up to me i would have like some sort of you know like I would toss in Guillermo del Toro or something or, or the Coen brothers, people who could, who could do a, a, a sort of like, in the case of the Coen brothers, a gritty violence um, necessary, or in the case of Guillermo yeah. del Toro, like a, add some, yeah. some of that magical realism um, to it. But, yeah. I, I think like, I think Terrence Malick in some ways, m- my issue with him was the violence, yeah. like capturing the violence. Yeah, exactly. Like he did. That's, His first movie is about serial killers. But this scratched the mystical itch for me. The, yeah. that, and that's yeah. just the judgment call that, that I made. And the Texas landscape. And the landscape, itch. yeah. Yes. Right. I think that's a good one, uh, but not as good as mine. <laughs> I think Woody Allen, like, Shut uh, the f- you know, <laughs> he could really. <laughs> set in Manhattan. <laughs> instead of the uh, judge no he'll go out there instead of he'll the judge, get the, the like, <laughs> he'll get the pedophilia <laughs> no that's never been established um no but that's that's a joke i like i don't think his sensibility is quite matched to this uh, okay so i thought of two um after i also considered terrence malick like i think park chan wook yeah, he actually crossed He's, my mind too, actually. I think his sensibility yeah. matches the book. His kind of the bleakness of, and the kind of somewhat absurdist bleakness of his worldview is yeah. very suited to the yeah. book. Yeah. But I just don't know if he can get the Texas, uh, Mexico, westernness yeah. of it all. You know, Martin Scorsese obviously has like the chops to do something like you you kind of want like I, the person i think would have been perfect is sam peckinpah but he died the year before this was published um but there's just that kind of run and gun just like crazy sev- 60s 70s wild uh western movie making you know like i feel like that's the kind of energy you need martin scorsese has a little of that but i think it's too catholic so i do you feel like I I came across settled on a good one, which is Werner Herzog? Yeah, yeah. Like the Fitzcarraldo energy, you know. Like you you get the sense that the set would be what you would want it to be on yeah. a Werner Herzog movie for Blood Meridian. You know, he has that kind of just dark, bleak, but not brooding sensibility that I think is that reflects the the novel i think he could be really good and he can direct american actors too like i was just watching bad lieutenant protocol new orleans which is fucking awesome and it's just bonkers like it has a kind of craziness like it's not at all like blood meridian but it has this kind of just what the fuck am i watching in the same way it's like what am i reading yeah right yeah i and he does seem to have like the requisite nature being mm-hmm. like I don't know, red in tooth and claw, but like awesome, beautiful, but in totally indifferent morally. Yeah, to, and dangerous. Yes, and dangerous, and dangerous. Yeah, yes. Grizzly Man is a great right. uh, Werner Herzog um, documentary. I'd love to just listen to Werner Herzog narrating the behind the scenes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, shooting Blood Marine. Like yeah. I really think, like if you're out there, producer of. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he's too old, but um, 
I, I, I think. I noticed Terrence like, Malick is 79 art, so he's probably too old, too. Is he? Yeah, yeah. I guess he is. Badlands is like 71, yeah, right? Sheen was a little boy. But <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, when you were saying Scorsese, yeah, like that's some, but that's a good, he's he's great at violence and, and that sort of, um, the sensibility for that kind of, of action and, and heartlessness to the violence. I just don't, like, as much as I love his movies, they're not like spiritual in any there's like i don't sense the spirit there like oh i disagree with that uh, like really like Like wolf of wall street he's too no no i'm not talking about religious wall street but like silence or the irishman or no no not religious i'm not talking about like jesus stuff i mean like a like a heart like that mystical heart that this movie needs like he's not uh, that yeah. at all you know yeah 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 right now i see what you're saying like in that way lynch david lynch yes. would capture that aspect uh, of it really well but also just i think he, he, his it's weird because like in some ways david lynch would be really good for this but it's not the same i don't know attitude it's not the same perspective on life again i think david lynch might be ultimately a little too optimistic for this book maybe like i mean i actually think the Coen brothers would probably do a good job, um, given yeah. given what we they've saw done it do. before. Yeah. Um, but but you you just don't want it to be as controlled yeah. as they would have it. Like I think this has to be a little wilder. Yeah, That's really why I like to be the peck and paw energy. Now-y. Like, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That kind of apocalypse now energy is kind yeah. of exactly how I think this should be. All right, what do you got for cast? All right. You know, for the judge, it's going to be no surprise to you because we talked about this, but I cannot shake this person as, the, and I believe he was even attached to it uh, before, but it's Vincent D'Onofrio. Like the more I read about yeah, the judge, Vincent D'Onofrio, I think for the judge, you need someone who will act the shit out of a role. Like, yeah. I think you really need uh, somebody who's going to take this seriously, this fucking fucked up character seriously. Uh, you need a big person. Um, yeah. You need a pale person. And the the image of Vincent D'Onofrio, childlike, childlike, like, yeah. At this, at, you know, Vincent D'Onofrio in Full Metal Jacket with his like shaved head, but now at this age with like a belly, um, he also played the kingpin in in the Marvel, the Daredevil. Like he was a main character, the, yeah. the Netflix adaptation, and he that character is big and bald and strong, and so I I can't like yeah. The, it, it, it. I have him more pegged to be the imbecile, but <laughs> yeah. I just don't know enough about him. Like, like I, I don't see him waxing philosophical. He looks definitely looks the part uh, like his face that kind of like I imagine the judge looking like that, that kind of baby yeah. fat cheeks kind of stuff, the somewhat innocence. But I just don't know like how he would talk about weirdly if you if you saw him in kingpin he yeah he acted the shit out of that in a very philosophical but like heartless uh way yeah. um so i think he has the acting chops but um yeah again like that's a good one but i have a much better one <laughs> wallace sean uh i think you know bald what's he in from princess bride manhattan <laughs> <Shut up. laughs> I always forget Wallace Shawn's name for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. Inconceivable. Uh, this world yeah. is inconceivable. 
uh, Jeff Goldblum popped to mind as someone with the physical kind of characteristics of the judge. I just don't know if he could pull it off acting wise. He's a good actor, but he's not. You need like an overpowering presence. Yeah. You know, he's tall. Uh, da- like he's Daniel Day Lewis actually, by the way, popped to my mind. That's too. Yeah. that's the one I oh, settled yeah, I'm on. Sorry. Yeah. He has that like overpowering presence, but yeah. he also isn't just Daniel Day Lewis. Unlike a lot of these like presences on the screen, like Nicolas Cage or like Jack Nicholson or someone like that, they are in the end Nicolas Cage and Jack Nicholson, but Daniel Day Lewis isn't. You yeah, know, like he yeah, could do it. Probably. Like I don't know what his size is. He's tall. Like, I really. looked this up too. Like he's actually, you did? yeah, yeah. He, um, then I think it should definitely be. Yeah, him. I think he like he's. I feel like he's the only person he's six who could two. really pull it off. Yeah, D'Onofrio yeah. six four. Daniel Day Lewis six two. Daniel Day Lewis would shave his head. And yeah. you just need to put some weight on, I think, um, yeah. to like the mass. Um, but, yeah. but you don't. Yeah, he would have to yeah. like bulk up. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, he, so, would, I mean, he would. And he doesn't have quite the face that. Uh, yeah, he's Vincent a little D'Onofrio good looking for it. Like that's why I, D- yeah. Vincent D'Onofrio has the ability to look like a pudgy, overgrown baby. Um, probably he does. He can do that. Yeah. He would just like research it. He would probably grow like five inches. Like he, like he, he would, would do whatever he would it takes. change the muscular for, structure of his face <laughs> by thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, just by living it. Daniel Day-Lewis, yeah. I think, is a good judge. I think um, that, that's a, a really good answer. Uh, All right, Toadvine. Do you have anybody for Toadvine? Toadvine toad 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 stumped me. So, so before, let me do my kid answer first because okay. this is the one that I this spent too much me. time <laughs> trying yeah. to let. I don't know. I don't <laughs> right. nobody of this acting generation. The FBI is wondering why you're searching <laughs> young actors. Like, I was uh, thinking about under how I 20. It, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the person that I came up with just, I don't even know based on what um, I saw him recently in something that I really liked. It's, this kid named Will Poulter. Do you know oh yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, from yeah. Midsummer. I think that he would. Whatever it is that I saw him in, I was really impressed. Um, he was. Yeah, Midsummer. He was in The Revenant. He uh, was in a Black Mirror. Um, yeah, he was in a Black Mirror. That's right. I think that he has enough of a baby face still, um, mm-hmm. but also I think is a good enough actor where he could he could play a young man with kind of that weight on on him. So the one I came up with for the kid is Nicholas Holt from Mad Max Fury Road, the one that's uh, that joins up. Uh, and he has that kind of violence and innocence that uh, he combines both of those that I think would be good for, for this role. Yeah. And actually, I'm, just look- favorite. I'm looking at pictures of him and I was like, oh, he's too pretty. But like. Obviously, in Mad Max, he's not. <laughs> so he yeah. has like the ability to. Would he be a good director? Uh, the Mad Max. Oh yeah, George it's, Miller. It's George Miller. Yeah. George Miller. He also, yeah, yeah. you know, he did all the Mad Max movies. Yeah. He definitely has. He could definitely stage a lot of the action yeah. really well. I know, um, and um, he has some of the apocalyptic sensibility. But um, yeah, the yeah, visuals sure. and the action would be good. So Nicholas Holt is mine. I also thought of Lucas Hedges, but I don't really give a shit about him. But he's good in whatever I've seen him in Manchester by the Sea, and um, he's uh, like not too pretty for this. Yeah, I think he could be okay. Um, uh, how old was Toadvine? This is what like I, this is what I started looking up, and this is what stalled me from for finding a Toadvine. I don't know. So I kind of assumed he was a little older than the kid, but not that much yeah. older. And so I came up with Barry Keegan. What's he? 
Barry. He was most recently in the Banshees of Inisherin. He's the poor kid who ends up. Oh yeah, he's good. Yeah, that's really good. And he looks weird. Yeah, exactly. And he's he looks a really good actor. Like I feel like that might be my best casting job right there. Yeah, that's really good. I like that a lot. Yeah. The, Did you the get only, anybody for Toadvine? Paul Dano is the only person who popped yeah, to mind. Like he crossed my mind. Yeah. I. I, I but yeah. It, whatever. He's for he's it. a little. He would have to act. Uh, you know, <laughs> he would, yeah. I mean, I think he's a good actor. Yeah, though. yeah, he could I, do it. I, I think just the physical, the likely physicality of Toadvine is something that that um, you know, but didn't Paul Dano doesn't jump to mind as somebody capable of like uh, that kind of violence. But but he's an actor. That's what actors. Do. Barry Keegan does look like an Irishman, though. So that would be yeah. Uh, but, that's the one thing you would have to suspend the disbelief. But he has. I, I hate to say this, but he has a particular kind of like inbredy look that that <laughs> no no insult to him. I think he's a wonderful man. <laughs> that that I buy he's so good. That I buy Toadvine having. Like, yeah, as long as he got the accent down, I think he'd be fine. Um, did you have a Glanton? I did not have a Glanton. No, my I had uh, the man. Yeah, I didn't do the man because I don't really have a good sense of the man. Yeah, so the man, uh, I just wanted this. Uh, although, yeah, so I think Christian Bale would kill it as the man. Um, yeah, yeah, like it, I just pictured Christian Bale in the scraggly beard in the bar in the last scene, um, being aloof and withdrawn, or in that scene with the kids. Josh Brolin also, I think, mm-hmm. would be a good man. But I, I like, uh, I, I like the idea of Christian Bale. Just don't pull any of your antics because it's like Werner is not going to put up with that. (laughs) (laughs) I, for Glanton, had, well, it really should be William Holden. I think William Holden, like Wild Bunch William Holden is perfect. But since that's cheating, I went with Russell Crowe. Like, I kind of feel like Russell Crowe could do a good Glanton. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, I haven't seen Russell Crowe in anything lately, have I? You just get rid of that Australian accent. And, uh, yeah, he can do that. Like, nice guys. He's yeah. doing a good American. I actually think Josh... L.A. Confidential. Yeah. Josh Brolin would actually potentially make a good Glanton, too. Um, yeah, he could definitely do that. You need a real tough guy. Like, it can't be, like, uh, Matt Damon or something right, like that. No. Who can play, like, George you know, Clooney? a tough guy. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> that's Glanton. Yeah, <laughs> charming. He's charming. <laughs> <laughs> Dream. I I really like William Holden. All right, so that's it. It's cast. Um, send us the royalties, the checks. I don't know what you guys worked out in your new deal. <laughs> but, We're casting uh, directors part of the strike. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. Any last words on this? I guess we are concluding. I Where feel we, sad. We made it. Yeah. yeah, there's there's plenty of more McCarthy to cover, I guess. But it, I find it, I am sad because I find it hard to believe that a book um, that I read in the near future will have the effect that this one had on me. Yeah, um, don't put that burden on the next book because exactly. it's probably not going to uh, match know. it. No, it's incredible. It is an experience. And thanks to our patrons for having us do it because I think we I, we might have read it this summer just because he died and it's always been up there for me and like the 
books that I haven't read, but we wouldn't have read it with this much care and this much, like, yeah. and just to be able to talk about it, it like this has been a ton of fun for us and hopefully for some of you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizards.